Hey gang, I'm Nikki LaCroce, and you're listening to Who the Fuck? A show that explores the power of human connection and the profound resilience of the human spirit through compassionate conversations that help you better understand yourself so you can live with the sense of peace, purpose, and joy that you deserve. Each episode offers a safe space for guests to share intimate details of their personal journey and lessons learned along the way as we all seek to answer life's most important question. Who the fuck am I? Hey gang, I'm Nikki LaCroce and you are about to listen to Who the Fuck. The episode that I'm airing this week was so organic that an intro wasn't even included, so I'm going to do that now. Uh, The guest this week is Marshall Zweig. Marshall is an interpersonal and resensitization coach who helps couples and families using his method, Truth Empowered Relationships. As a trauma-informed coach and relationship expert, Marshall understands that our most important relationships are not just connecting with other people, but they're also about connecting with ourselves. This is something that I deeply value and have done my best to embody throughout the show and through my own personal evolution. So I hope that you enjoy the episode. Let's get into it. I'll see where we go. But when we first talked, you are the most, I've been on a number of podcasts now. You're the one that felt like a hang (sighs) and I get, I get goosebumps and I get touched. So like you asked me how I was, I'm like, well, Maybe we're just going to have a conversation. I don't know where this goes, but I'm ready to just fucking talk to you. Oh, I love it, Marshall. That means so much to me. Yeah. You know, I I appreciate that because I actually, so I've been recording a ton and I actually realized yesterday, I was like, I think after the uh, interviews I have scheduled, I just need to press pause because I just have a backlog and I need to get through it. And my desire to connect with people, and I'm sure you understand this because of what you do and how, I, you know, just the conversations we've had. I desire so deeply to connect with people, but then I also feel like I'm not going to give myself time to do any of the stuff that helps me grow the podcast itself because I'm like, I want my focus to be on like just having the conversations. I wish it could market itself. My dream job, my goal would be to have a studio where I can just have people come in and we sit down and we talk. I want people to hang and I want to just have a real conversation conversations about real shit. So that's the goal. I'm putting it out there. (laughs) Well, I can, I can tell that's the funny thing. I can tell that about you. Like we just had the conversation. You didn't tell me any of this and look what I said to you. Yeah. I like going in and at least setting the stage for making a difference. Maybe, maybe inserting myself to make a difference. Setting the stage. You feel like a person. I just want to go, well, let's talk. Yeah. Thank you so much. That's the best compliment. I, I seriously, it means so much to me. And I was really looking forward to this conversation because it has been a while since we chatted. It's funny because my wife, um, when we've had conversations just in general, because she's my biggest fan of the podcast before we were even together, she was listening and saying, you know, I just really love this. I feel like this is what you're meant to do. And so when she listens to episodes now, she's like, well, I love it when you put an episode out. Cause I know when you're like, my wife is just like, I'm, you're talking about me. And I'm like, it's usually pretty good stuff. <laughs> Isn't that fun? Isn't that, but, and I'm like you, I sit there and edit mine and I'm like, I want this to be my day job, my night job. This is all I like doing. I love this. It's like a dream come true. Yes. Yes. And here I, I am with you. You feel like a friend. Yes. Well, I mean, this is what I've established. It was like, I'm the person that growing up, I was so afraid to tell people how I felt about them because I felt like it was met with feelings of weirdness. Like, why are you so open about how you feel? Why are you telling me these things? And even into adulthood, And then I feel like I started doing the podcast and I really stepped into who I am and I was just sort of like, fuck it. 
I'm just going to be who I am and people can kind of take it or leave it. And one of my best friends from college, she and I always joke around like from our freshman year of college when we became friends, that one of the hardest things as an adult is establishing when you truly have a friendship with someone because you don't like say it. You're like, we're friends now. I like to do this because I think it's very important to help people understand. But the idea is like, if I say to somebody, oh, my friend Marshall, but like, do you say your friend Nikki? Because if you don't, we have different expectations and understandings of what this dynamic is. And so it's like, if I refer to somebody as my friend, like I think, you know, for context, I would probably say this guest on my show initially, right? And then guiding into whatever that relationship is. But I don't sit here and think every person I talk to on my show is now a friend. Would that be ideal? That would be cool. That would be really cool. But you don't connect with everybody the same way. Right. And and even I word it, I feel like we're friends, right? Yes. You, you, you don't have an illusion about you. I don't have an illusion about me. But that is something I've learned is that you can be friendly with people, but that doesn't make them your friend. That's part one. Part two, People, I've now noticed a pattern. You know, the meaning-making machines up here, they notice patterns. And a lot of time, they're false patterns. You have to work on those. I've I've been working for decades. The pattern I'm noticing is that when people try to rush into being friends, there's a problem with with, uh, the way they relate to people. Mm -hmm. I have noticed that time and again when you're rushed. It's not like in fourth grade. Will you be my friend? It's not like that anymore. Now, people who say, come on, it's going to be fine. There's something going on below the surface. Now, do you have to believe me? No, that's just my data, my observation Mm -hmm. over time. Yeah, that's really interesting. Well, so I had a podcast guest who I felt like really connected with, really great conversation. She was very open in the dialogue, but like energetically not super open, if that makes sense. It makes complete sense. Yes. Some Listen, we all have masks that we've created from certain traumas and 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 perceived traumas that we've experienced and the question is are you going to go into it and shed the mask or do you remain you know on guard for something that you don't like i can tell i don't need to be guarded with you you're a sensitive person you're a kind person there's nothing to worry like i could i could cry so but some people retain those guards no matter what yeah yeah that's such a good point. I feel like for so long, I taught myself to be guarded because the reaction that I would get from people was it's too much. And the thing that being a podcaster has shown me, first of all, I love talking to other people who do podcasts because or or some form of connecting with people through conversation because there's a very, I think more open flow and desire to connect in those conversations because that's like what you're there to do. Maybe not somebody who sort of just talks into a mic and says whatever they feel like saying for the sake of talking, but people who are actually regularly speaking with other people. I agree. It can even work if I'm going into Rite Aid or CVS or Ralph's, if you say wildfires, you're probably out West and you have a conversation with the cashier, but a conversation where I'm guessing you're like me an HSP, a highly sensitive person, a conversation where you don't even know that person, but you, you can say, you look tired today. You tired? You can tell. Am I right? Are you that kind of person? It's so funny that you said that because Nicole and I had this conversation and I I was saying, I love connecting with people. I don't like transacting with people. If I can avoid talking to somebody because the only thing that I need to do with them is talk to them on the phone to be pointed in the right direction for something and there's zero interaction other than like this task is being completed 
then I'm like, automate it, send me to a robot. I don't care. It doesn't matter. I'd rather not make a call. I'd rather talk to a chatbot. It's fine. But if given the opportunity, even if it's a bank teller or the other day I had to close a bank account and I was dealing with multiple people from the same place because I had to make several calls back and forth because there were some issues, but everybody was perfectly pleasant and they were very capable. And you know what people love is when you tell them that they are doing their job well and they Mm -hmm. appreciate it because first of all, you're probably getting reamed more often than not when you're on the other side of a line like that. I've been the lesser version of myself who has had moments of short tempered with people. And I usually try to preface that with this really isn't about you. I'm just in a mood right now. So I apologize if it comes off that way. Um, But when you have a chance to interact with people and feel even just on the phone, like this person understands, you know, that I'm trying to solve a problem. They're trying to be helpful. They're going out of their way to assist me. Like that level of just attention to the, to the relationship, even though it's a very brief relationship makes all the difference to me. That's the that's the variable in what like a good experience is and in an interaction where you walk away feeling, I don't know, um, fuller um, yeah. as opposed to just sort of like, okay, well, that's something that I had to do. And I feel that way with podcasts too. The whole reason we ended up having that conversation was because I've had a couple of guests where I said to Nicole, you know, it's a good interview. The conversation was good, but And she's like, it's lacking vulnerability. And I was like, yeah. And I said, you know, it's hard for me because I come in and I'm like, let's get vulnerable. Let's do it. Let's do it right now. And and like you said, not everybody is that way. And Nicole's made the point because she has had very limited amounts of trauma in her life. And frankly, up until a few years ago, I would have said the same thing about my own. And so I can relate to that and say, well, it would be harder to be vulnerable if you don't have to access those things a lot or you don't think to access those things a lot because you haven't gone on this healing journey or tried to navigate certain things. Now, she's done a lot of self-work and she's super self-aware, but she's like, the people that you're talking to where you feel that disconnect, it's maybe not even that they can't get vulnerable, but it's just that they don't think to. You know, It's not who they are. It's not where they reside in that place of vulnerability. And so for me, it's the different... So the differentiator that I want in this show is to be like, you come on this show and the expectation is you're going to be vulnerable. You're not going to yeah. sit here and give me your five tips for whatever. I mean, not that anybody does that. I would, wouldn't have them as a guest if that were the case. The idea is that you're going to come here and you're going to have a conversation, scrap the talking points, bring up the things that are important for you to talk about. If you want to promote something, promote it in whatever way is organic. But at the end of the day, what I care about is like, who are you and what message are you trying to share? And and help people understand you, not, you know, give me your rundown of like the five things you say on every podcast. Make this conversation different. Interesting. I, I can't imagine because you are so unique. I can't imagine someone showing up on the show. Like I feel a calm in my nervous system hanging out with you. And I'm being dead since well, alive sincere, but you know, <laughs> like I this is what I feel. I don't have to be anything but me. And there are times that I appear. And the other people are hepped up and I get caught up in that energy. And what your wife said was interesting. Let me see if I can remember what I was going to say, because she said uh, some people, oh, they don't think to be vulnerable. And other people, when they're vulnerable, they've gotten things like this. They've gotten, uh, well, cheer up. Or they've gotten, it's not so bad. Or they've oh, gotten, yeah. why don't why don't you do this? 
right? And after a while, if you don't have enough words for it, or if you don't even want to come out of yourself enough to have the words for it, which is like, thank you so much, but I'm really struggling and all I need is understanding. If you don't want to be doing that, eventually you just put that wall up. No kidding. Yeah. I love that you said that too. I'm curious because of the experience that you have doing what you have as an interpersonal coach and focusing so much on really like couples dynamics too, is do you see that as not just the way that people can communicate differently, that can be challenging in relationships as it is um, because you have to learn somebody's communication style, make sure that you're saying things and understanding how to respond, listen, et cetera. But do you find that there's a variable in people's vulnerabilities that tends to create distance between couples in your experience where like if one person's more vulnerable and like craving that vulnerability from somebody else or um, somebody's less vulnerable and feels the other person's too sensitive. Do you come across that a lot? I, I would say it's in almost every relationship that comes to me, because as much as I say people deserve relationship coaching, not need it, people who need it are usually who seek it out. And I guess it makes sense, you know? Uh, yeah, I, I see that. I see a lot of people saying, you know, why do we have to go back to the past? Why why can't we just move on? Well, somebody's not complete on this. But the truth is the person who's saying, why do we have to go back to the past? It's painful there for them in some way, and they don't want to feel that pain. It's very Ooh. interesting. Oh, I love that. I just got goosebumps because it's so true. It's so true. I was it, honestly something I'm dealing with right now, um, going through this continuous healing journey, leaving the abusive relationship that I was in for over a decade, I realized that there were a lot of things that happened that I processed in the moment because I needed to, but I sort of walked through that fire and then was just like, okay, we're done now. And I do talk about it in therapy but there are the parts that I prefer to not go as deep on. And so what I'm trying to navigate is what is the healthy level of going through that processing that I need to achieve to get to the place where I feel comfortable in myself again? Because revisiting trauma is triggering, obviously. And there's, I'm sure just given the work that you do, there's the whole idea of like the window of tolerance, right? It's like, what's too little, what's too much. And then where's a good emotional regulation in there. And I find that sometimes I get really amped up and I get really pissed off about everything that happened with my ex. The lack of accountability is the thing that drives me up a wall any time of day, doesn't matter. And it could be something really small or really big. I think societally, there is a lack of accountability at all like levels, but I think that the more power you have and the less accountability you have, the more chaos that ensues. And I think in relationships, there's sort of that same thing with the power dynamic. It's like if you are the person who's the highly sensitive person and you're dealing with somebody who's narcissistic, who's never going to be accountable, your focus in those moments is just getting through it. And then once you're through it, you're kind of like, I don't really feel like thinking about all of this again. But you know that to get to a place of true healing you can't just sweep it under the rug and forget about it because the reality is, is that these things happen to you. And that's the part that I'm still grappling with right now. Um, and I think being in a loving, safe relationship right now is such a massive contributor to my ability to access those 
parts that I need to, to heal because it is so unbelievably uncomfortable to go back to the past sometimes. And that's not related to this relationship, but having the safety in this relationship gives me the ability to have the calm to approach what was with more, uh, with a more pragmatic mind. Yes. And you, you pro- you'll probably love this because you host a podcast in my sessions. I record clients traumas and I'll play it back for them. And we talk and then we'll pause and talk it back. And not only do details and memories come back, but completion happens because it's your voice talking to you. And you're like, Oh yeah. Do I really feel that? You know what? I forgot about the, it's very, and I have goosebumps again. It can be very healing. Maybe it's something you can even use on the podcast. Yeah. Yeah. I love that. I've been guesting on more podcasts recently and the few that I've done, one of them was actually a true crime podcast where I talked about my relationship with my ex. And that was actually like the first um, of my recent guest spots that I did. And I was like, this is probably going to be very healing and also a little traumatic for me to deal yeah. with. So um, I I gave myself as much grace as I could going into the conversation. and was like, okay, here's what we're going to do. We're just going to let it flow. I needed to go back and revisit things that I had written to kind of get me into the mindset of what, how I wanted to share my story because there were a lot of really horrible things that happened. And there were a lot of moments that, I mean, even my wife doesn't know, like she knows bits and pieces of things because it would be hard to be like, let me run you through all of the deeply traumatic scenarios that occurred for me and everything that I was feeling during those times. There are things that until I go back and look at things that I wrote during those times that I don't even remember, you know, and it's, partially suppression. And I think also at the time there was just such a high volume of trauma that it's, it's not even like dissociative sort of removal of the memory. It's more like, I just, there was so much happening that like the overstimulation, just what got processed and what didn't get processed were sort of of the moment. And how am I feeling at any given point in time to be like, okay, this is the thing that I have to address. And so I think part of that now too, is, is to your point, going back and listening to myself and doing that through things that I had written, doing that through videos that I had recorded or or audio that I had recorded for myself because it was in those moments how I could process it, just put it down somewhere. And I don't know that my thought was ever, oh, I'm going to revisit this. But now having that opportunity, I think it's been really powerful to be able to go there and, and hear that. What was the moment where you knew you had to get out? Was there a moment or was mm. it a series of moments? Um, that's such a great question. Thank you for asking. Um, It was a series of moments, but there was like a very big deal breaker moment um, that sort of then multiple moments happened afterwards. So the the moment that I left Seattle and went to go stay with my family, I had gone through a lot of things with my ex. There was very clearly some substance abuse issues happening that she was lying about. She continued to crash a bunch of my cars, totaled like three of them in a year. And then she got in this final accident. And at that point, I had put a dash cam in my car um, because I was like, you keep crashing my cars and there's no explanation for it. And so... Literally no explanation? it, It was like, oh, like something ran across the road or this happened or that, like nothing, nothing that made sense. Okay. And so the same thing sort of happened this one night. She was supposed to be home like two hours before she was. And then I get a call and, you know, like I'm sure because, you know, just knowing a little bit of your backstory, when you have a lot of trauma that like your gut, like, you know, you know, when something's off, right. Your yes, body's you telling do. you before it even happens, you're like some shit's going down. I know right Something's now I'm not wrong here. The spidey senses. Yes. Know? Yeah, totally. And so 
I um, get a call. She's in another accident. It's not making any sense. And I go and I look at the dash cam footage after the fact. And she's taken my car to go to a homeless encampment, pick up drugs. I can't see any of the stuff in the car because I didn't have a like a in inward facing camera at the time. But she has a homeless man in my car. I can hear the conversation. And she does heroin in my car as a police car drives by. Um, sm- smoked heroin um, from what it sounded like. And she denied it. She said she was dissociative. She didn't remember any of this. And that was the thing. She would constantly say it was dissociative behavior. And the couples therapist that we'd originally started going to eventually became her EMDR therapist and eventually was doing EMDR for me after another traumatic event. All of this is like ethically unsound. And in retrospect, I would have made different choices. Um, That said, I was like, you can't deny this anymore. I'm looking at it. I can hear you. You're conscious of the things that you're doing. You can't tell me that you don't know what you're doing because on another part of that recording, you know that you're lying to me and I can hear it. So um, she was basically on a drug run of some sort, um, then crashed the car and tries to deny it. I take care of her for like 10 days while she's going through some sort of withdrawal at that point claiming that she'd never done this level of drug before. Uh, Meanwhile, my best friend from home is like, her sister's dealt with addiction for a really long time. She's like, Nikki, I'm telling you right now, you don't go through withdrawal like that if you've only done it once. And so I... um, But but this is not the moment yet. No, no, no. Okay, go ahead. So then I end up going home after this because it's like mid-COVID. So vaccines weren't out yet. And I was just like, I need to leave. And she's like, no, I can leave. I can go back to my family in Pennsylvania. I'm like, you can't drive, let alone travel. You're telling me that you're dissociative. You don't remember anything. You think that you flying makes sense. Like, that's crazy. No. And so I went back home. And then when my mom passed away, um, she came out. I asked her to come out. Regrets. But... At the time, I thought that that was support that I needed. And she had just such utter disregard for myself, my family during that time. And um, her family was really awful during that as well. And it still became all about her. She was putting wedges between myself, my family, my best friend and I. And so she ends up going back to Seattle. Things aren't going well. I'm very clear that like this is going to end. I get back a couple months later at that point after my mom passed away and within 24 hours of getting home and she's like, I'll do whatever you need me to do. I'll be here. I'll be supportive for you. She, um, I saw her phone and she had a message with our address on it to an unknown number. And I was just like, what the hell? So I grabbed her phone and she chased me out of the bathroom in a towel. Cause she was in the shower. Cause I'm looking at this. I'm like, who's, who's being given our address. And she violently assaulted me threw me into a fence, threw me down to the ground, bit me twice to get her phone back. And it was like any semblance of support that I thought I needed, any any remnants of what I perceived that relationship to be historically, it was like, it didn't matter. Nothing else mattered. It was like the line was so far beyond crossed at that point. Like it was bad enough that the, all of this stuff happened with the the drugs and many events before that, by the way. But then to have the disrespect with the loss of my mom and I was like, okay, like the it's over now. And then to be in such denial to assault me that after the fact, as soon as she got her phone back, she called somebody else and told them that I assaulted her. Wow. And the only way I could get her out of my house was to tell her that I wouldn't call the cops. Um, So I didn't call the cops that night. 
And then I called the cops the next day and I got reamed by her parents um, for holding her accountable. And then um, that was sort of that. I mean, it was it was a series of events, as I said, but like that was definitely the obvious when you need a restraining order, it's pretty clearly over. <laughs> What's it like when you know you saw this with your own two eyes and then someone is so delusional that they say the reverse thing happened? What's that like? Because it's gaslighting. I just know what's that like for you to experience. And then you get reamed by her parents. What's that oh, like? Man. Oh, my God. I, not only just reamed by her parents, but also the the therapist that saw both of us and knew me very well. And I trusted. Um wrote a letter of recognizance to get her out of jail, citing me as the abuser. Wow. So what's, what's that like? Cause that's, that is very psychologically painful for most people. Yeah. Yeah. No, it was terrible. I, it, it makes me mad. I'm going to be honest. Like if I'm going through my own therapy, um, like vibes right now, I'm thinking I'm feeling it in my body. I'm feeling enraged because it's absurd. It's that lack of accountability. It's the lack, it's the attempt to justify the most abhorrent behavior, bl project the blame somewhere else so you can evade it and then try to come out looking like you didn't do anything wrong. It's like you said, it's delusional. And it's delusional. the thing that aggravated me the most in all of it, though, to be honest, was she played on the fact that I paid a lot of attention to mental health and primarily because she had been through told me she had been through a lot of trauma. I do believe based on her behavior that there's clearly some sort of significant trauma in her life. Um, but I also feel like when I started learning more about things that can happen as the result of like complex PTSD and I'm asking her questions about it, that she's sort of, my perception was she's sort of studying this in a way, right? She's learning what she can use to manipulate me. Mm -hmm. um, what she can use to play to my sensitivity and my to empathy. To preserve the delusion, to preserve the delusion. If you want to piss me off, there are only a couple of things. Like, I don't get mad if somebody cuts me off the track. What I might get momentarily angry. Yeah. Uh, well, lying to my face is, is never good. But if you have a delusion, like I have a neighbor, and this this person is insulting, he is argumentative, he is condescending, it was awful. Yeah. Um, he wants us to believe he has a happy family. And I can see that they don't. He gets mad. He got, he literally lost his temper with me. When people lose their temper with me out of a desire to protect their own delusion, I'm, I fold. I'm out. So it's it's interesting that you said that too, Marshall, because the moment that she had me pinned to the ground and had like was trying to get the phone and bit me, which I think that's the part that is hardest for me to say out loud because it's absurd. I was on the ground. I knew where I was in my yard to be able to like just right turn my body so it didn't land on a very big jagged rock. Like I knew where I was. It was dark. I was lucky. Wow. The then you might have really been on a true crime podcast. Well, okay. So I legit said that to my dad. I was like, I I feel like it could have gone so much worse than it did. So I'll be grateful for that in whatever way that I can. Right. But when it happened, I just remember the look on her face and and talking to my therapist and my close circle of people when I was sharing the details of some of this with them and saying, like, I just can't forget the look on her face because she was so 
fucking committed to the lie, Marshall. Mm -hmm. So committed to the lie. There was no, there was no reality that matched with what my reality was. And what I think the reason that was such a huge breaking point for me beyond the obvious abuse was there is no coming back from this. You have convinced yourself that this is the way life is. And for me, I was finally like on it, kind of like slapped awake in that moment where it was like, this life that I've been living has not been my reality. I have been deluding myself into believing. Yes. That, you, wait, you get to disillusion yourself, yes, which is a totally. valuable feeling. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. So I think for me, it was like, okay, I need to stop acting like this is something that it's not because it, right. this is to your point, it's not healthy. It's not good. And I was covering for her for years, you know, and trying to make excuses. And, and in part, to your point about your neighbor and just the way we are as people, I think, you know, we do that to protect ourselves. We don't want people to think some type of thing about our relationship or who we are and what that says about us. But at the end of the day, if you're not happy and you're not safe, who gives a shit what everybody else thinks? Right. And these are really warning signs. There. Let me tell you a quick story. I had a friend, we went to this Persian restaurant. He was a friend in a personal growth class. And he start he, this guy, I watched him. I'm accepting people. He always thought these particular women liked him. His, his gym, his, his trainer at the gym, and this person in our personal growth class, another girl at work. I, I said girl, woman. I apologize. For no, that. that's I I I feel like girl's the thing that's sort of universal, but I understand what you mean. <laughs> okay. Thank you. I don't want to be offensive. So in fact, I I almost wanted to know if you do. You, do you allow me calling you dude? Because I almost called you dude. Which oh, is not... I call everybody dude. I feel okay, like dude. I th I think that <laughs> this is like a little bit of a tangent, but I will say I feel like dude is universal. I hope nobody's offended by that because it's such a it. it baked in part of my language and not in a way where it's like, I will respect people's pronouns. I will call you whatever you want to be called. But right. dude is like an exclamation for me right. that comes out regardless of who you are. It has 0% to do with any gender. What about you guys? I also say you guys, because I See, think me too. It, I've had this conversation. Actually, my wife and I were talking about this. I think we did a TikTok about this a few months ago because we're saying, I think maybe y'all is sort of the collective that people can get around. And that's fine. I try to use that, especially if I'm writing it. But when I'm speaking, I definitely say you guys or hey, guys, um, with the podcast, when I open it, I say, hey, gang. Um, and then I'm like, oh, my gosh, does that give people implications of gangs? And then I'm like, I can't. This is I can't. Right? This is such start, a rabbit you hole. To, you start to right. You you politically. We're all sensitive. You're trying to be sensitive to your audience. Then you then you'll lose it. I have to t finish the story, though. So all these women like him and it, none of it's true. now. I have been very accepting of this person with a bit of an agenda. I start to ask him questions and I know how to ask questions. I trained in NLP and I, I understand how these things work. And he got to sitting at this Persian restaurant on the floor. He got to the moment of, wow, none of these women like me. I'm, I'm making all this up in my head. And I, I stayed quiet. And I tell you, Nikki, nine, I have goosebumps again. 90 seconds went by of silence as we ate and then he looked up and he started talking about the three women again and i thought to myself in that moment that's why i said what was the specific moment in that moment that he started talking i said well this is the end of our friendship this is the last time i'll ever see this person in public again and it was well you know i love that you shared that too because and and 
I appreciate that you asked that question of me as well, um, because it was a very, uh, in my opinion, in retrospect, a much more gradual progression um, in terms of my coming to awareness and reality and needing to escape that. Because the years prior, there it was really like we were together for over a decade and every single year there was something that happened um, that was off kilter. Then the last couple of years leading up to the events that I shared with you, it was like every couple of months, something deeply, deeply traumatic was happening. It was like very, very hard to function. And so I'm going into work trying to act like my life is fine. And I'm dealing with it. And I'm working in a high pressure job. I was uh, working as a product manager for Amazon and corporate. And so like the bar is high and you need to meet it or you're, you're out. And so I'm trying to navigate not just like relationship lows, but deeply traumatic things that are happening constantly to the point where I'm in therapy every week which was separate of these issues to begin with, and then ultimately became really about those issues. And recognizing that every time I'm in a session, like I didn't even have time to recuperate between the last traumatic thing and the next traumatic thing that's happening. And one of the things that I love about the work that you're doing um, and something that I was reading on your site is that, you know, you understand that our most important relationships are opportunities, not just to connect with someone else, but to reconnect with ourselves and the essence of who we really are. And Marshall, when I tell you, I understand that so implicitly, like I cannot emphasize it enough. I had no idea how much I lost myself until I was out of it again, because I held on by like the tiniest little thread. The My deep, deep, deep need and desire and purpose to connect with people is what kept me above water in the times when there was like almost no hope. Because I refer to my ex as like the human equivalent of a cinder block tied to your ankle. It was like every time I thought I could like get up for air, I just got pulled right back down, you know? What was the lie? And I say this for your listeners too, and not just you. What was the lie you were telling yourself that kept you in there? Like I could help her. What 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 was the lie? Yeah, yeah, that's um, yeah. I I do think I a big part of it was I think I I can help her. I want her to live a better life. I want her to feel what it's like to have a happy life. And I see how traumatized she appears to be, and how much this has negatively affected her life. And I can help. So you had compassion too. Yeah. That was coming. The lie was coming from compassion. Yeah. You just and, couldn't see, you couldn't see the danger because of the compassion. Yeah. And, and then, and even when the danger was really like, Hey, Hey, you are at risk now you are at risk, you know? And it was hard because there was, I mean, we met when I was 23 and she was 31 and I didn't understand anything about narcissism at the time. And in retrospect, everything happened the way that it would happen with a covert narcissist, any narcissist, but a covert narcissist in particular, where you see an empath. I was young. I was vulnerable. I hadn't had an adult relationship yet. And what I saw was somebody who's older than me, who has more experience. And also, by the way, was a behavioral specialist specialist for children with autism. So Interesting. So she knew psychology, right? But used that in such an insidious way. And the thing is, is when we first met, when you talk about the lie that we tell ourselves, I told myself what she does for a living indicates the type of person that she is. Ah, She's, that's like philanthropic. That's a, you're a good person. You want to help children with autism be more functional in the world and give them a chance. How noble, right? Yeah. That doesn't say shit about who you are as a person. It says what you've decided to do as a career. 
I was at a healing conference. This is exactly responding to your comment. I was at a healing conference once, and the guy who invented it is called network spinal analysis. Now I think it's just network spinal. It's like spinal flow. You might have heard of spinal flow. Mm-hmm. And he he said, if you ever want to know who the most fucked up people are, they're the network practitioners. So the people who go into this sometimes are the people who have dealt with the most difficulty and oftentimes the most confused people. That's why you got to be careful. Who's your therapist? Who's your coach? It's got to be someone that you know you can trust. Yeah. Well, and I love that you said that too, because so the couples therapist I referred to, um, she crossed lines. It was very clear in retrospect. I saw that as somebody who's attentive and caring and blah, blah, blah. But I had my own therapist this entire time as well and had that therapist prior to the couples therapist. And the fact that like I would constantly get into these moments of like, I shouldn't be in this relationship, trying to navigate it and and talking to my therapist and recognizing that I was being gaslit and trying to talk through that. Wow. And yeah. And said to my therapist, can she come in and can we have a conversation? She's like, why? So I can, so I can take your side. And I was like, I was like, yeah, yeah. You know, and it was like, that's, that's the question you want the therapist to ask, honestly, because at the time I was a little like disgruntled, like, how dare you not be willing to side with me? And then seeing the ethical conundrum that I ended up in with this other couples therapist, the amount of respect I have for my therapist. So I've been seeing her for almost five years, I think now. And I've watched her grow as a practitioner. I see the empathy. I see the connection. I've watched her witness my highs and lows, right? And so there's something to be said for the importance of those boundaries and the recognition that she knew the reason I wanted my ex there at the time with me was because I needed to feel validated because I wasn't being heard in the relationship. And in the couple sessions we were having, the couple therapist was siding with my ex. Her drawing that boundary was one of the most important things that could have happened for me because I think it could have absolutely changed. I watched how my ex triangulated the situation with the couples therapist. And it's shocking how I think I didn't understand how quickly as a therapist, things can ethically get very confusing. I can only imagine. I I could never be a therapist for that reason among many. As a highly sensitive person, the fact that you do what you do and you have interpersonal relationship conversations with people you get like really in there with them in that level of connectivity I admire I would hold on to it so much like do you find that you um take any of that on you mean the conversations yeah no at the end listen the truth is I'm rooting for my needs to get met your needs to get met and the other person so in other words like if, if there's two couples okay it would be this person, this person, and me. We yes. all matter in this situation. Totally. Yeah, yeah. And so as a result of that, as soon as I'm done, I'm like, what's next? What's the next thing? No, I don't hold on. I don't yeah, hold on. You, well, you have I'm, to, like, right? It, yeah, you have to. But 15 seconds before, like like when you came on, it was sort of like that. I was like, here we go. I got excited. Whatever the feeling is about the person, that happens 15 seconds before. Yeah, yeah. I appreciate too having gone through so much with my therapist she I mean I remember the moment that I was on with her and had to tell her that my mom died she had watched me go through these really bad moments already and I could see the empathy she's just so professional but also so 
empathetic. And one of the things that I love is that she'll, when I share things with her, that she'll tell me that like, this is really sacred and it's important. And I love that use of that word. It really validates the, I think the intimacy of the conversation, but also the privacy of the situation, you know, the importance of keeping that close and, and understanding that you can trust that person when you speak to that. Um, and when I told her that my mom died, she's extremely professional. And at the same time, she's a human being and she's witnessing one of her clients going through what she knew, by the way, leading up until that point, part of what I struggled with, with my ex, that fear of losing my ex, because she was getting these car accidents, bad things were happening to her. I didn't know what was going on. You know, big part of that was being gaslit. But the other part was that I was afraid that she, I was going to lose her, that she was going to die. I was going to get a call. Something was going to happen. It wasn't until my mom died that I realized that was the relationship I was worried about losing. Interesting. Projecting it onto her. Fascinating. Yeah. Yeah. And I remember the look on my therapist's face when, when I told her and she was just kind of like this recognition of everything that I've been feeling and that massive, massive fear. And it's like, like, what do you even say? Right. Like there's, it's like, there's just so much empathy and, and sympathy in those moments. And I think sometimes it's that um, shared space. And even when it's silent, just recognition of what you're going through and giving you the space to cry. And giving you the space to cry and feel. Right. Yes. Healing yeah, through I feeling. Love, is that what you, is that what you yeah, said? Yeah. yeah I well, love that. You know, that's what you do. That, think about that's what you did that day. And she gave you the room to do that. So. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Something that I saw when I was prepping for the episode was the questions you're all, always ready to answer. And one of them was, is every relationship salvageable? And it really made me think of this past relationship that I've been describing because I would have to say, The answer probably is no, because sometimes people just shouldn't be together and it's not always healthy. But I'd love to know from your perspective, what's your answer to that question? It's almost exactly what you said. The answer is, is this a relationship salvageable? I don't know. What I can tell you is what you're going to find out in here is what is meant to happen is going to happen. If you're meant to be together, you will be. If you're Mm -hmm. meant to separate, you will. I yeah. allow what's going to happen. Well, I don't allow. I'm not in charge of it. But I create a space where it allows people, people's destinies to emerge. Let's yeah. say it like that. That's beautiful. Yeah. That's such a lovely way of putting it. And you're right. Because once you stop lying to yourself, that's what happens. You're faced with the actual situations that are in front of you. And I think to the point you made earlier, it's like we can avoid things by lying to ourselves for as long as we want. But it will come to a head. And the analogy that I've given um, before is that it's sort of like when you say you're going to clean your room as a kid and you're like, just shove everything under the bed, just keep shoving it, keep shoving it. Eventually like shit's going to start pouring out from under your bed, right? You can't bury it forever. And so you have to decide at some point to clean up the mess because if you don't, it's just going to get worse and it, it becomes unavoidable. And so I feel like a big part of having a healthy relationship, particularly if you're in a place of conflict and any relationship has conflict. I have a beautiful marriage. I know that I'm with my person and I didn't really buy into that idea of, you know, when you know, you know, until I met her. Same. And now I, I fully believe that because I do know and it makes sense. But I spent over a decade trying to convince myself that I knew. When you mentally commit to something and you're like, this is what I want. So this is what it therefore shall be. Like we spend a lot of time trying to believe that what we've mentally committed to 
is the thing that we want. And in reality, what's actually dictating that decision that we've made, because it might not be the actual relational dynamic that you have with a person. And in that moment, who's the delusional one? We are. Oh, a thousand percent. I can fully acknowledge that. That's the accountability I can take now. And by the way, that was one of the things that when my therapist brought up to me was like, well, how how can you recognize where you were accountable for certain things, where you were responsible for certain things? Not to be like you as the person who's gone through this psychological and ultimately physical abuse, you're to blame. That's not what it's about. It's we all contribute to the circumstances of our lives, no matter how you slice it. So what was your contribution? And where do you think that like you recognize things that if you knew what you know now, you might've done differently. And that's the other thing, right? Because you don't know. And a big part of- it's so easy in retrospect to look at it and be like, I should have left sooner. Look at all these things that I did. But I talked to one of my friends who I met through the show, a friend who I met through the show. That's cool. And yet, right? Um, and and they said to me, you left when you could. And it was the most empowering thing that anybody could have said to me. Yeah. Because it's like you guilt and you shame yourself for a lot of stuff when you lie to yourself for so long. And then at the end of it, you have to remember that like you didn't know what you know now. Yeah, and... That you were you were having a human experience. You you were afraid of your mom dying. Projected it onto her. Wanted to help her, and was believing you were doing the right thing for yourself. It's 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 that we live through life and recognize those moments. Now, like I say to your listeners, and and you and I share the exact same thing. I say to your listeners, Nikki and I actually have the person who was meant for us, and both of us did not believe that person existed until we found them. Well, I shouldn't say didn't believe. I, I had skepticism, let's say. Yes, that. yeah. And, and then it exists. So I say to your listeners, if you're in a relationship like Nikki, where you're pushing yourself to tell yourself that this is the relationship for you, ask yourself why you're doing it. Yeah, 100%. And, you know, I would love your opinion on this too, Marshall. So one of the things I found to be so valuable for me after I left the relationship with my ex and I was going to therapy like twice a week at that point because my mom had passed away and I was just kind of dealing with everything all at once. I realized that one of the the lies that I told myself or one of my core wounds or core beliefs about myself was that in feeling needed, I felt wanted. And so to your point about wanting to help, that was driving a lot of my behavior. And what I recognized in that was that I needed to start thinking about what I wanted and needed in a relationship, not just what I needed to give somebody else. So something that I like to tell people to do, if you're not in a relationship or if you are in a relationship, I think you can do it either way. I think people who are in relationships might have a harder time with this exercise because it could point out things that they don't want to acknowledge. But writing a list of my wants, needs, and deal breakers was so empowering for me it provided me with such a tremendous amount of clarity that I didn't understand was essential for me to actually realize what I valued in a relationship, but also what I valued within myself that I wanted somebody else to value. Do you feel like that's something that in your experience, either you've practiced or you've seen people recognize that they haven't necessarily thought, oh, well, this is what I truly desire from a relationship, not just you're a person that I can be with. I think that is the predominant uh, default setting for people is that people don't actually know what they want. You know, I, I I was engaged at a younger age to a woman because I was the right age to get married. 
she was uh attractive to me she was kind she was but that that those are those are characteristics that's not love love is not a characteristic yeah oh that's so powerful Love is not a characteristic. And, you know, the way I got to my list of my wants, needs, and deal breakers was actually looking at a list of core values and thinking to myself, okay, well, what core values are the most important to me that I want somebody else to reflect as well? And I think when I looked at that list, beyond thinking this is what I want in somebody, I started looking at it going, why did I accept so little for so long? Because when I look at this list, that person really didn't fulfill many or any of these things, if we don't ask ourselves these things, especially as we're evolving, then we can kind of get caught up in the idea of what we want to believe is right for us instead of actually navigating our lives in a way that gets us to a place where we have what we want. We believe sometimes that it's a lot easier to just accept what we've been given because look, it's the amount of people that say, well, you can never get everything that you want. And my wife and I are like, fuck that. No, (laughs) you can get what you want. You have Uh, to have high standards. If you lower your standards, you will have lower. Agreed. 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 It means you have to be more patient and you have to be more discerning. But I think the end result based on what you've said about your relationship with your wife and my relationship now, that is well worth the wait. Well, worth the wait. This is someone like your wife. I struggled through a couple of years of long COVID. I'm fine now, thank goodness. But she loved me through it. My memory of that time does not include one experience of her panicking, asking me what's wrong. She was her gracious presence and accepted me through that. And I tell you, and see, I get just on the look in your face, I could cry. That is a major reason why I'm here right now. Because she loved me unconditionally and peacefully through that. So let me add in that to your listeners, if you're not sure what you need, go to CNVC, Center for Nonviolent Communication.org, CNVC.org. And there are lists of feelings and lists of needs. Like, you know, maybe you need compassion. Maybe you need acceptance and understanding. Maybe you need validation. There's all these things. And Nikki's going there as we speak. It's very valuable. If you're not sure what you need, because like there was this server at a deli and I would order something and she'd be like, you don't want that. You you want the omelet. Like, what the fuck? I I want what I ordered. But if that happens enough in life, if something's put on our plate metaphysically and we're told, don't get up until you're done eating metaphysically, we start to not know what we want, not know what we need. We start to wonder. And then we're trying to fulfill other people's needs and they try to fulfill our needs. And that's called codependency. That's exactly the opposite of a healthy relationship. I love that you just brought it back to codependency too, because that was something that was so hard for me to recognize because I probably would have called my ex very codependent because I was responsible for so much of our lives, not recognizing that my behavior as an enabler was also codependent behavior. Yes. It is. My favorite joke, you may have heard this, to de- to uh, to describe codependency is that uh, one person in the relationship wakes up, the other person says, so sorry to bother you, honey. I just want to know how I'll be feeling today. <laughs> yeah, I haven't heard that. That's great, though. <laughs> and when you rely on other people to basically dictate 
how you're going to feel. How do you even know what you feel? Like you said, when you were referring to the deli situation, and it also made me really think about just how much unlearning we have to do to be able to get to that place of growth, because we have in a lot of ways configured our lives to meet the needs of others. And there's a book that I constantly reference to people. um, Well, I guess it's two books, adult children of emotionally immature parents. Have you ever read these or heard of them? Uh, are they miniature look? Are they like only that big? No, no, no. They're like, they're kind of, they're full length books. And I think one of them oh, might no. be more workbook, but it's, it was so interesting for me when I first got this book to think about how many times certain things that I would do were based on my anticipation of my parents' response to something. Yes. Yes. And it drives me insane now because with my ex, she would do this. And this was with my current partner, but our first notable conflict when we started dating was she had said something to me about not wanting me to not wanting to say something because of how I would react. And I was like, nothing pisses me off more than when somebody tells me that they know how I'm going to react because you don't know how I'm going to react. We don't know how somebody else is going to react. We can anticipate that, but I feel like it's unfair to not share information because you're afraid of how somebody's going to react when they might react completely different. And now you've taken that opportunity away from them to respond in whatever way they would have. Now, maybe I would have responded irrationally. Maybe I would have had some sort of defensive response. However, isn't it only right to give somebody the space to have the reaction they're going to have and then collectively, you know, work through that. Now I say this as somebody who understands that not everybody can be reasoned with also. So it's hard, but for me, that's one of the things where I'm like, don't tell me how I'm going to respond. Let me respond. And what if that had been, what if the objection had been said to you this way? I'm scared of how I make up that you might react. Now it's much (laughs) easier to deal with now. Yes. Well, and to your point, this is really the truth, right? Is I can reflect on, well, why don't you want to tell me because you're worried about how I'll react and what you're worried about is that I will get mad and you don't want to receive that anger. And maybe my anger is irrational. And frankly, I'm somebody who I know that one of my biggest detriments in my own life is that I am reactive and my frustration and stress comes through in a way where I physically feel so anxious that like, I'm not going to physically exert that anger, but I'm going to get loud about it. I'm yeah, going to give explode. it off. You probably radiate it too. Yes. Oh, a thousand percent. But if I say to you, I'm scared because of how I make up that you might react, it's probably me who has the issue with with anger rather than you. Does that make sense? It might sense? be twofold, honestly, because I will say yeah. I, I can be an irrational mad. I'm not gonna disown that. I we, have we all that. we all can be <laughs> actually my wife said the most complimentary thing the other day on the podcast. She said, one thing I'll say about Marshall, when he gets mad, he makes complete sense, which is, I actually almost started to cry. To my friend on the podcast, it was very, very nice. I appreciate that a lot. And I I will say, you know, a good example of this too. So last night I was saying, I'm going to try to go visit my family. And, you know, I wish that they could come out and visit more. My sister has two young kids. My parents had only come out once when I was in Seattle and now I'm up in Vancouver, but I wish my family could make more of an effort to come visit me. And Nicole's validating why it's more difficult for them and that it is easier for me to go out that way, et cetera. And I'm like, I understand what you're saying. And I'm just upset about it because it's right. And it's like, I know that 
what you're saying is valid, but it doesn't change the fact that what I feel is what I feel. And so you're sometimes navigating that, like, I understand the rational side of this, but I also understand that I have these feelings. And then I end up, Marshall, I, I feel like you'll really appreciate this. I end up like laying outside on our patio on the couch. And then I just start crying and rolling myself and being like, I just like need you, mom. I need you here right now. Wow. I like need your support. And recognizing that the reason that I'm getting so upset that my family has not come out to visit me as much is, especially since losing my mom, is that because it's so hard to go home without her there because it doesn't feel the same. And so I like came in and I'd been crying and I'm saying there, I'm like, it's just, it's so different. It feels so empty. And it's like, you're never going to know what it's like for my whole family to be there. And so it was really powerful and healing and painful all at the same time. But it was that recognition of the way I'm reacting and responding is coming from a place of hurt and distress and the need for comfort and not, I'm really angry at my family that they're not visiting me more. You know, it's hard for me to go home is what that's about. That makes sense. So you got a chance to reach that on yeah. your own. What I will say though, is that the feeling and the fact deserve in my reality, equal weight. So your feeling gets validated and then you might be able, well, it turns out you found an important realization, but at some point you're, you're open to, yeah, that's true. It's easier for them, but that's the minor conversation compared to the major realization you had. Yeah. Well, and that's what I said to her too. And what I really appreciated too, is that I was in the kitchen and she came around and was like, do you need a hug? And I was like, yes. And I just, I said, thank you for making me, I was like, as I'm weeping, thank you for making me feel so safe. Thank you for giving me the space to feel all these things for showing up for me when I need it. And, and recognizing because she came into my life, Marshall, like moments after that assault happened. Um, and I was not looking for anything. We established maybe we'd be friends. She listened to the podcast, was like, yeah, we should totally be friends. And then um, it just progressed really obviously in the direction that it did. And thankfully, because at the time I was really convinced that, you know, I don't think I understood what it would feel like to be safe. I spent so much time in fight or flight and, and with all this stress and anxiety that it wasn't even occurring to me that I could have this unconditional love, this safety, this true support. Because when I lost my mom and my ex couldn't just be there, couldn't just show up in like the smallest possible way. I was like, I'm going through this alone. This is how this is happening. And my partner now just, she came in and she took it all on as a friend and then as a significant other. And that is no small task. She has done a lot to contribute to my growth and because of that safety that she provides and that comfort and that understanding along with the connection through core values, because I do think it all comes back to that. And frankly, I shared my list of wants, needs, deal breakers with her the week that we recognized that we had feelings for each other. And the best part about that was that she's like, well, it is a long list. And I was kind of like, whatever, I don't care. You should see like, these things are all non, non-starters at this point after what I've been through, like I'm fine with the list being long. You were bad. You were ready to draw the line. At 100%. And she's like, I mean, the only thing is maybe, you know, passive aggressive doesn't need to be a deal breaker. And as she's saying this, she's like, I mean, knowing full well that I'm passive aggressive sometimes. And I don't want that to be a deal breaker. List. That's funny. You have to rule yourself out of the relationship. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> That's funny. In my lowest moments, I'm passive aggressive. It's very rare for me, but same. I, same. I, can be, I have to be really angry and I've had to either held it in or not get any validation for my anger, then it comes out. You're right. That's such a good point. I would say I'm probably the same way because there was a moment probably a few months ago where I said something and she was like, I thought you weren't passive aggressive. And I was like, yeah, well, 
<laughs> got you. But that that's important in a relationship. Someone who will call you on your shit in the nicest possible way. Yeah, yeah, totally. A while back, I got mad with my wife and, and she said she imitated something I said. And I started smiling. And as I smiled, I said, I'm really sorry. That wasn't right to say that. But she imitated me with a light heart, gave yeah. me a chance to feel my shame with with graciousness. You know what I mean? Yes. Oh, that's that's such a great way of saying that too, Marshall, feeling shame with graciousness. And that's something that I spoke about with somebody recently too, about how important it is to give ourselves grace. And it's challenging. That was something I hated hearing from people. Give yourself grace, give yourself grace. What does that even mean? What am I supposed to do with that? And I think because I was holding on to so much shame for so long that it was really hard to be forgiving and to give myself grace and to find the patience to give myself grace. And what I recognize is that you have to, in order to grow, give yourself grace. Otherwise you're just gonna, you're gonna let your past indiscretions or decisions or whatever they might be dictate your future. And what I've found through my own journey and seeing what my ex had gone through and seeing like the way that I've come out of things and so many guests that I've talked to on the podcast, when I say that I held on by a thread because of this podcast, I I mean that like it was the thing that kept me going during COVID because it kept me connected to people and it showed me what it looks like to be resilient in the face of extreme adversity, extreme pain, extreme trauma. And it was all these people coming on much like yourself and saying, there is better. And, and you don't have to stay stuck in that. And in order to get to a place where you can acknowledge that you don't need to stay stuck in it, you have to give yourself grace. Yeah. And, and notice the words that have stood out just on this podcast, grace sacred when you're when your therapist said that i feel like here you and i are two or more gathered right we're talking mm -hmm. about and and there's love between like i can feel oh I, absolutely i, I, love, I love that this experience yes so i feel like you recognize the sacredness of having a human experience yeah give other people a chance to do it with you for an hour however long it is yeah thank you so much that is like just so complimentary i find it so interesting to recognize the things that like really fill me up now that I'm in a place of much greater comfort with who I am. For the longest time, I could not say that I liked myself, let alone loved myself. And it wasn't until a couple of years ago where I got to that place. And when I got there, I recognized like how instrumental that was for me to recognize that a big part of why I felt a lack of belonging or a sense of discomfort for so long is because I was afraid really to be who I was and worried about what people would think. And when people like yourself share with me what you just did, like it's the most validated that I can feel because I'm showing up a hundred percent as I can right now and feeling like that's what you see and that's how you feel. And that's just, like I said, it's just the biggest compliment that I could receive. And it's, it's the recognition that you feel seen. We all crave that sense of belonging, that sense of acceptance. And why I do this show and approach the conversations the way I do with the openness that I do is because I know what it feels like to not be seen, to not be heard, and to feel like who you are is not okay or or shouldn't be exposed. And I want people to be able to come here and be exactly who you are and show up in the way that's right for you and talk about the things that you want to talk about because these conversations are the ones that change people's lives, not the here's my five talking points I'm going to rattle off again and again and again. You know, it's like I can somebody can go listen to a podcast where 
somebody says these five things and then listen to the next one where they say those same five things. And maybe there's a little variance in between them. But what I want is like, let's get to the core of of who we are and explore that and delve into it in a way that creates more compassion and empathy for those listening as well. Yeah. And five talking points don't light up the human psyche like, oh, I did this. Me too. And now we're talking. They're like, me too. Yeah. You know, and they can all join in. We're having a human human experience together in front of a mic so that those people can see something about themselves, hopefully, and join us in the human, more human experience, taking off the masks, on guarding the heart, being ourselves. It's not yeah. the, you're we've been recording this whole time and there have been long more goose. Look how many I know I got them too. Had on the show. <laughs> long stretches of time where I fucking forgot we've been recorded. Yeah. Long stretches. Yeah. That is, I've never had that experience on a podcast except my own. So I give you all the props in the world. <laughs> Thank you. It's, it, I, I'm like about to have a moment. I received that. <laughs> I saw it go in. I saw, thank you for taking that in. Thank you. Thank you for saying it. I have such an immense amount of gratitude for you, Marshall. And I feel like this could go on for so much longer. And I want to be mindful <laughs> of time. I, I think really succinctly, I, had a wonderful time with you. I had a wonderful time with you. Thank you. I, I wasn't on a podcast. I was I was talking to a lovely human being and having sh- a shared human experience. Thank you. I was yeah. as well. This was Thank like you. exactly when what we, I needed. Good. Me too. And when we made the appointment and then it was like a month and a half out, I remember like seeing it and I'm like, oh, it's so far away. And today it came. It's been a, as everything I thought it would be when we met, which is a hang. This has been a hang. Thank you yes. for be, for being, you know, I, I had a lady who worked at a crisis line who said, when people would say, will you be my friend? This is coming back to what we talked about in the beginning. All they were allowed to say is, I'm your friend right now. So no matter what happens, thank you for being my friend this episode. Yes, absolutely. Likewise, I appreciate it. And I appreciate just all of the insight that you shared and the personal stories that you shared and the ability that you have to connect. I have so many more thoughts that I would love to be able to dive into in the future and questions about things that you're doing. Because, you know, one of the things that we didn't have a chance to like fully dive into was the work that you're doing and the method that you use with truth empowered relationships. I think we got into that in like a more abstract way, but I was kind of curious what, um, what prompted you to go to that place? Should I throw it out now? Or do you, if you, if if, I mean, if you have time, I have time. So. Yeah, I, I will. I'll tell you that my mom and I have worked things out. So I need to say that first. And I, it took great psychological, put me in great psychological strain. We work things out. When I was little, so I need to preface that, I did not like the way my mom and dad treated me, but they were absolutely in love with each other. And so it wasn't safe to be myself, just like you. I'm living outside my body, trying to wonder. And I was taught, like, care about other people's feelings, care about other people's needs. Yeah. Nobody ever was, was caring about mine or telling me to care about mine. So it was not safe to be me, but I got to watch this love experience, which was so nice that I could even say, and so safe that I could even say, well, I I would do that differently. I would do this differently. Love dominated my life. And it was the one thing that made me say, one day I will be happy. I used to draw this little circle on my, a little happy face on my 
backboard or the headboard. What's that called? Headboard yeah. at night. Someday you'll be happy. People say, wait, get your shit together, get your life in order, and then find your relationship. Find love whenever you find love because life goes by. Find it. Find it. In my case, I say make love a priority. Yeah. Yeah. To piggyback on that, I would say make self-love a priority also. Self-love a priority. So the, the thing about truth-empowered relationships, I've done decades of personal growth work. I'm the world's first resensitization therapist. It's now a recognized modality by the uh, International Association of Therapists. I figured like this. Just like that moment that you that your therapist said, "Why well, you need so I can take your side." The reality is, we all at moments do want someone to take our side. And my design of this thing is like a board game. There are rules and there's a structure. So the the structure and the rules are taking your side, and they're taking the other person's side. Play by the rules. Love by the rules. That's my idea. Oh, oh my gosh, I love it. And I also love games. So that's a really great way to put it. <laughs> that was my, I was like, well, and I think this will this will sell well too, because, you know, I don't mean to sound icky, but like, I did think that. No, no, that's, that's smart marketing, my friend. Thank you, thank you. <laughs> and that's, and that's the thing, right? Is like, we need something that we can relate to, something that feels right. connected to us. So it's, frankly, I think, one of the hardest things for people when they're trying to go on a personal growth journey or even in a relationship, go on that journey together is it can feel really clinical. It can feel really sterile. And then to bring them in with a sense of this is a way to kind of ease yourself into it. It feels more accessible. It feels more obtainable in terms of the growth. Then to me, that's, that's the masterpiece, right? You're giving people a chance to find themselves within that practice and within that modality, as opposed to, you know, this is the way that it's always been done. Therefore, this is how you have to do it. Get creative, be playful, find the parts that feel right for you and drive towards the growth that you want to achieve using that. Because it's it's not one size fits all. And I, I do believe that a lot of people have fear around opening up because we think that somebody's going to tell us what we should do or how we should be. And in reality, it's your own exploration of those things that's going to get you where you want to go. I agree with that. I think I, 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 I it was such a perfect statement. I'm like, nothing else <laughs> needs to be said. That's exactly right. Marshall, you are just such an absolute delight. This has been such an amazing conversation. I appreciate you sharing a bit about the work that you're doing too, in a more direct way. I also, what, an amazing accomplishment to be the first resensitization therapist, like to have that recognized. That's so incredible. I feel like we need more people who are coming into the mental health and, and overall well-being space that are focusing on new mechanisms um, because we are living in an ever-changing world. And one of the things that I saw too that you were doing was working with people who was it like who are, are content moderators because like of how yes. intense that can be. And it was like, and it didn't even occur to me that that could be something that somebody's dealing with. And it's like, obviously it is. Dude, you, you have, these are people, think about this, your fight or flight system. And I, I have diagnosed PTSD, so I'm trauma-informed. I helped. Oh, you do too? Well, of course, right? What well, we went through. So um, I these people see these images of people getting hurt, criminals get hurting, hurting people. And your fight or flight response goes off. Well, guess what? You got to sit there for another seven hours and 59 minutes and 50 seconds until your shift is over. So 
they they did studies. Uh, you remember the Boston Marathon? There was a bombing that went yeah, off. Yeah. People who watched six or more hours of news coverage of that event, it was like they were there. It was like they were there at the bombing, which is wow. a, 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 another thing itself. But that these people are are I call them digital world protectors. They're pulling that icky stuff off the internet day after day, week yeah. after week, month after month, and that's their paycheck. It's a tough job. Wow. Tough job. Yeah, I'm gosh, I could have a whole separate conversation with you about that. I would love to have you back, Marshall. This is a delight. <laughs> let's 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 be friends again. <laughs> yes, let's be friends again. Thanks for listening to Who the Fuck. And if you like what you hear, share the show with your friends, family, coworkers, or anyone else you think needs a healthy dose of introspection and raw authenticity. Feel free to rate and review wherever you get your podcasts. It's always appreciated. And you can also visit whothefck.com to check out more content. Plus, you can follow me on Instagram, TikTok, and YouTube at whothefck underscore pod to keep up to date with what's new in my world and for exclusive bonus content. Catch you on the flip side. Hey guys, it's Miriam Love here, and I want to share something very special with you. Check out my new release, All In, the Spanish remixes, out now on Electric House Records. And always remember... Be love, share love, all love. Available now wherever you listen to music. Introducing the Deep Leadership Podcast. Leadership is a people business. That's the philosophy of your podcast host, John Rennie. As a former submarine officer who spent 22 years leading businesses in corporate America before starting his own manufacturing business, he knows that leadership matters. Leadership matters. Deep Leadership is real-world, actionable leadership advice from John and his expert guests. Become a leader worth following. Subscribe today. Electric acid.